Hey, my name is Scotty, and I'm the host of the Rational Apprentice podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you are most welcome here. A quick note before starting today's episode, the Rational Apprentice podcast works differently from other podcasts in that it's linear rather than topical. This means that the podcast should be listened to in order, starting with episode one. Whether the latest episode is number 300 or it's 3000, if this is your first time listening, number one should be your episode of choice. This also means that skipping episodes or listening out of order will prevent you from fully understanding the concepts being presented and may cause you to misconstrue or miss vital proofs. I've said this countless times already. I do not require nor desire leaps of faith, nor will I ever ask you to take my word for things. The assertions I present to you will always be proven using observable and repeatable facts. I don't use trickery and I have no hidden agenda. What I do require from you is that you have a curious open mind and that you rigorously exercise intellectual honesty. If after listening, you know of someone whom you feel would like or benefit from its content, please share this podcast. It's the only way I can get the traction to keep making content for you. Again, thanks for coming and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast. In the past few episodes, I've given you Professor Galambos's definitions of the term theft and slavery. And we talked about whether A, taking C's car, either by himself or by hiring or voting for someone to do it for him, fit the definitions and thus constituted theft, constituted slavery. Finally, we added to that the variable of A's getting the approval of the entire community to take C's car, and whether that rules out the crime of theft. And that's kind of a fun thing to do. But at no stage, and I've stated this a number of times by now, at no stage did I assign a value judgment to theft or slavery. I never said whether I thought that theft was right or wrong, or whether slavery was right or wrong. And I've never asked you to do so either. What I did do is familiarize you with what I call the Snelson triads, and to consider which of the three possible outcomes was correct for the concepts of theft and slavery. One, theft is always right. Two, theft is always wrong. And three, theft is sometimes right and sometimes wrong. And of course, ditto for slavery. Slavery is always right, slavery is always wrong, or slavery is sometimes right and sometimes wrong. But now I have to admit, when I've talked to people about this in the past, regardless of the size of the group, the vast majority of people agree that theft was always wrong and that slavery was always wrong. And the vast majority of people also agree that for all the scenarios, A, taking C's car without his permission, constituted theft and constituted slavery. And so without, of course, getting your direct opinion on the matter, as this is a podcast and not a live lecture, I can surmise that for the A, B, C scenarios that I proposed, most of you would probably also agree that theft is always wrong and slavery is always wrong. But the A, B, C scenarios are simple and two-dimensional. They're black and white. They're nuance and emotion-free scenarios. What happens when we make them more realistic? If you are currently of the opinion that theft is always wrong and that slavery is always wrong, let's see if your opinion changes or falters. One, Joy goes for her annual physical exam. Her doctor is one of 300 medical practitioners in a massive medical complex. 
While sitting in the examination room waiting, Joy, without her doctor's permission, grabs three or four pairs of surgical gloves for personal use at home. Is this theft? Is it slavery? Number two, a father, with tears in his eyes, takes $10,000 from you without your permission to pay for a surgical procedure that will restore the legs of his daughter, who has been a paraplegic ever since the accident when she was hit by a drunk driver. Is this theft? Is this slavery? Number three, an engineer working in her shop for 15 years innovates a new revolutionary method of energy generation that is highly efficient and completely environmentally friendly. In fact, the waste product from this energy conversion technique is a currently scarce and highly valuable material that can be immediately used in modern manufacturing. Her invention is stolen by someone who, without the engineer's permission, sells the design to a major energy firm, which takes the product into production. Now, even though the innovator receives no money for the generator, energy scarcity worldwide is virtually eliminated overnight, finally giving the third world the leg up it has always needed, increasing efficiencies everywhere, and eliminating most harmful energy-related waste. Is this theft? Is this slavery? Four, you, your small son, and your husband or wife have been living in a rundown apartment building. You've been saving for years to finally be able to move to the home of your dreams. You finally scrape together the down payment and can make enough to cover the mortgage payments. This is awesome. You are finally going to get out of here and move to a place more civilized, where your little boy can go to a good school and there aren't any crack dealers outside your front door. Then, Suddenly, the Federal Reserve increases the interest rates, making those monthly payments $800 more than you can afford. But your real estate agent informs you of something fantastic. With a federally backed FHA loan, you can get a reduced tax-subsidized rate, lowering your personal interest rate back down to something you can afford. Is this theft? Is this slavery? And finally, five. You and your wife or husband go to Michelle's, a French restaurant much lauded for their fantastic wine list and elegant service. Upon entering, you quietly and untruthfully tell the hostess that it's your 10th wedding anniversary, which, upon completion of your meal, prompts the staff to sing a congratulatory melody at your table and present you both with a gratis creme caramel. Is this theft? Is this slavery? So what do you think? If theft is the seizure of property of another without their consent, and slavery is the control of another's property without their consent, and it's observable that it is not possible to seize another person's property without also controlling it, each and every one of these five scenarios must fit the definitions of both theft and thus slavery. There are only two possibilities when it comes to property leaving your control. It either leaves your control voluntarily or it leaves your control involuntarily. There are no other options. The question then arises, are there various and different rules for the seizure of property without the permission of the owner? Now, before we answer that, well, it's story time. I'm going to tell you a story now, which Professor Galambos aptly called the pig story. It's 
kind of set up like a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar kind of joke. But it's not a joke, and there's no punchline. It's just a really highly useful metaphor. All right, so the story goes that there was a reporter doing an expose on farmers, ranchers, and their respective communities. And in order to get some first-hand opinions on the matter, he goes out to ranch country to speak to a few of the locals to get their take. So the reporter is driving along the back roads, and he comes across a ranch, not a huge ranch by any means, but it seemed well-kept, and best of all, the rancher was already outside working. So the reporter stops his car, he gets out, and with microphone and recorder in hand, he asks the rancher if he'd be willing to answer a few questions. Well, Hollyfield was the rancher's name, the Hollyfield Ranch, and he seemed a nice enough fellow. And he agreed to answer a few questions if they didn't take too long. Great, says the reporter. Let me give you a scenario. I see you have a neighbor just across the road there, and he has a ranch too. Yep, replied the rancher. That's a Jansen ranch. Good folks at Jansen's. Well, Mr. Hollyfield, asked the reporter, if, say, there were a drought, and Mr. Jansen had lost his cows to that drought, and you had two cows, would you give Mr. Jansen one of your cows to help the family out? Well, thought the rancher, sure, I'd reckon I'd help the Jansons out with a cow, sure. Uh-huh, said the reporter, checking his notes. And Mr. Hollyfield, if, say, they had lost their horses as well to the drought, and you had two horses, would you help them out with a horse? Sure enough, replied Mr. Hollyfield. Like I says, the Jansons, they's good folks. The reporter checked his notes again, made a quick mark, and said, Okay, Mr. Hollyfield, now, if the Jansons had also lost their pigs to this drought, and you had two pigs, would you help them out with a pig? Well, now, Rancher furrowed his brow and thought a minute before he looked over to the reporter and said, Nope. Now, quite taken aback, the reporter incredulously looked at the rancher and said, But sir, I'm confused. You said previously that if the Jansons lost their cows, and you had two cows, you'd give them a cow. Then you said that if the Jansons had lost their horses, and you had two horses, you'd give them a horse. But now you're saying that if the Jansons lost their pigs, you wouldn't help them out with a pig. What's the difference? Well, simple, replied Mr. Holyfield as he walked away getting back to work. See, I'm a pig farmer. I got two pigs. Okay, so what's the takeaway here? Well, the pig is analogous to self-interest. If you have a strong personal preference or an axe to grind, that's your pig. The point is, is that it's not difficult for us to make or follow rules, philosophies, or commandments when those rules, philosophies, or commandments impose little or no impediment upon us when it's not our pig. It is, however, a very different thing when it is our pig, when we are the ones restricted or impacted. In our story, Mr. Holyfield was quite generous when it came to the charitable distribution of hypothetical cows and horses. But once the scenario involved his very real pigs, his magnanimity was overmatched by his self-interest. It's human nature. Not because that's the way I want it, it's just the way it is. But the same applies to theft and slavery. It's not difficult to call A a thief when he's stealing a hypothetical car from C. But when A and C become real people in real situations, it becomes more difficult for us to maintain our convictions. After all, a few rubber gloves from a multi-million dollar company, or a single dessert from a big restaurant, I mean really, who's it hurting? 
And after all, A takes C's car, but C's insured. They'll never even miss it. They won't even notice. And the invention of a new energy generation method with virtually no downsides? It's a benefit to everyone on the planet. Something as huge as that has to be developed and distributed to anyone who wants to use it as quickly as possible. Right? But does the seizure of a few rubber gloves or the fraudulent manipulation of the restaurant staff, without the consent of the owners, fit our definition of theft and thus involuntary servitude or slavery? And does the seizure of a new energy conversion technique, without the consent of the owner, fit our definition of theft and thus involuntary servitude or slavery? An energy generation technique that is a direct derivative of the engineer's life and actions. And I might add, would not have even existed without that engineer. But could it be that because we're the ones benefiting here, because it's our pig, we now have a hard time maintaining our convictions, and thus we look to justify? So we end up back with my original query. Are there different rules for the seizure of property without the permission of the owner? Is context something to be considered when it comes to theft and slavery? Well, perhaps it is. Perhaps it does make a difference, and there is such a thing as good theft and good slavery. It may be that theft and slavery can be highly constructive practices that are and have historically been beneficial to mankind. And the entire problem of the past has been that we simply have not had enough theft and slavery. Well, it could be. As we discussed when forming our company, Subjugation Inc., the great problem we had was to figure out how to gain control of people's property without their permission. I mean, if we couldn't do that one simple thing, we'd never be able to enslave them. In contrast, if people ever figure out how to retain control over their own property, the derivatives of their lives, well, then they can completely prevent themselves from being enslaved. And that's not going to be good for business at Subjugation Inc. So in pondering the rightness or wrongness of theft and the rightness or wrongness of slavery, we have thus far determined that there's every possibility that theft and slavery are good and beneficial to mankind. And there is every possibility that theft and slavery are bad and detrimental to mankind. We've seen scenarios that using relative means could point to both, haven't we? But what if there were, as I mentioned in the last episode, what if there were a way to scientifically determine whether theft and slavery were right or wrong, objectively, in all cases? Now, this is historically been a seemingly impossible task, but Professor Galambos innovated the solution. It is something quite unique to the Galambian theory, the application of the scientific method outside of the realm of the natural sciences, specifically applied to society. Now, in the coming episodes, I will explain to you what he figured out and demonstrate how to use the scientific method to determine the rightness or wrongness of human action as a total concept applied to everything not just physics. But that means first, we will have to discuss the obverse terms 
relative versus absolute, right versus wrong, good versus bad, and of course, true versus false. And that's where we'll pick it up in the next episode. All right, Mind Over Murder is next up. All right, we have two Mind Over Murder cases this week, as we will for the rest of the summer. One for you adults, and the other for the kids, as part of the Mind Over Murder Kids Summer Series. We'll do the adults one first. Now, as I mentioned in the newsletter, this one doesn't have a lot of clues, and relies less on your evidentiary skills, and more on your ability to merge facts together into a story that fits the given, albeit few, details. Now, assuming that you've read the little story setting our stage, let's get right to the solution. Jennifer Slocum wanted Jerry to leave his wife, Sarah, and marry her. To that end, Jennifer made the highly rational decision to send Jerry's wife a letter informing her of the affair. In Jennifer's mind, this would free Jerry, and the two of them would then be unencumbered and could be married. So she wrote the letter, she looked up the address of Sarah Smith in the phone book, and posted the letter. That night, she exuberantly informed her lover Jerry what she had done. Which, I mean, geez, lady, watch some Perry Mason or something. This causes Jerry to fly into a rage and, of course, kill her. Jerry is then forced to diligently watch and wait for Jennifer's letter to arrive so that he can intercept it. But it never comes. And Jerry is now tormented over the fact that the letter could arrive any day. Was the letter somehow lost in the mail? Might it be found on some random day? Or is the letter gone forever? But what Jerry doesn't know is that Jennifer got the address from the phone book. And as their address is unlisted, Jennifer sent the letter to another Sarah Smith, a 95-year-old woman living in Pasadena, who was quite amused when she read it. Which all goes to prove that when you make a commitment, keep it or man up. Cowardice doesn't pay. All right. Next, we'll open the case notes for the car thief and go first through the story, then the statements, and finally, we'll run down the facts of the case and see if we can eliminate some people from what they say. At 1 p.m. on April 12th, Tommy Porter parked his car in front of the Reedsport Cafe, where he went for lunch. At 2 p.m., Tommy returned to where he had parked his car, but the car was gone. There was one witness, a man named Henry, who exclaimed, I saw a lone young man break into the car and drive away, and it was just a few minutes ago. The man was six feet or slightly taller, he continued, with blonde or brownish hair. He had tan skin and, and some facial hair. Oh, and he was wearing dark pants. Now, four possible suspects were apprehended, and each made a statement. Now, remember, we must assume that all of the statements are true. No one is lying. Okay, the first suspect is Bill Lacero, who said, I was in Reedsport on the morning of April 12th by myself, but I left town before 2 o'clock. Next is Jake Smith, who said, I ate lunch in Reedsport that day, but I did not get into town before 2 o'clock. Next is Trey Woods, who states, I was in Reedsport the week of the 12th, but I was always with two friends. All of us are about six feet tall. And finally, we have Ben Daly, who said, On the 12th, I ate lunch before noon in Reedsport, but left 
before 2 p.m. Now, one of the four suspects was arrested that evening, and the thief confessed to the crime. Okay, now, as I said in the newsletter case notes this week, the best way to tackle something like this, when there are a lot of people making statements and giving facts, is to look for little pieces of information that can eliminate people from our list of possible thieves. Take, for instance, the different heights of each of the suspects. There are two that are tall and two that are short. Now, was there anything in the story or said by the witness Henry that mentioned anything about height? Well, Henry said that the man was six feet or slightly taller. Now, that's pretty tall. If Jake Smith or Ben Daly are six feet tall, that would make Bill and Trey over seven feet tall. Now, I guess they could be basketball players, but that doesn't seem likely, does it? Then we have what Trey Woods said. I was always with friends and we're all about six feet tall. See, now we have something to go on. If Trey Woods is about six feet tall, that makes Bill Lucero about six feet tall too. And Jake and Ben are shorter, about five and a half feet, I'd say. So right away, just from the clues we got about the heights, we kind of know that it has to either be Trey or Bill, don't we? Is there anything else that the witness Henry said? Well, he describes the thief as having tan skin. Well, everyone except for Trey seems to have tan skin, but it's kind of hard to tell. And he says that the thief had blonde or brownish hair. Well, Trey has blonde hair, but again, it's kind of hard to tell with the others. The rest of them all seem to have brownish hair. And then he says that the thief had some facial hair, which is what? A beard or a mustache, right? And they all have that. So I'm not sure any of these clues are going to help us much. Are you? Ah, wait. But then witness Henry remembers that the thief had on dark pants. Now that, I think, is good enough information for us to eliminate both Jake Smith and Ben Daly. I mean, I certainly wouldn't call yellow or light blue a dark color, would you? Okay, so Jake Smith is clear. He can go home. And Ben Daly is clear. He can go home. That leaves Bill Lucero and Trey Woods. So let's look at Trey Woods. He said that he was with those huge friends of his. And in fact, he said that he was always with those two huge friends of his, didn't he? Now, what else did the witness Henry say that might give us a clue here? What about the fact that Henry saw a lone young man break into the car and drive off? Now, if Henry saw a lone man and Trey Woods was always with friends... Could Trey Woods and the thief be the same person? Well, nope. One man and three men are not the same thing. I think this eliminates Trey Woods. What do you think? And I think this leaves us with who? Well, Bill Lucero. And he's got crazy stick-up hair. But let's make sure. We don't want to miss anything. And there's one last clue that's kind of hard to pick out. What can we say about the time, the time of the theft, the time that 
Tommy Porter, he's the guy who owns the car, came out of the cafe. And the time the witness, Henry, saw the thief drive off. Well, Tommy Porter came out of the cafe at 2 p.m., right? And witness Henry said that the thief had just left in the car. But what does Bill Lacero say? But I left town before 2 p.m. Well, okay, he wasn't lying. He sure did leave town in a big hurry. All whilst driving the car, he had just stolen from Tommy Porter. There's your thief. I told you, it was the sticky-uppy hair that gave him away. Now, there are a few more clues in there, if you look around. They can be used to eliminate people. We didn't really need them in this case, but there are a few more. So if you want a little extra challenge, see what else you can find. Alright? Alright everyone, that's what I have for you for the week. Please share the podcast if you know someone who would be interested. And if you use any of the video platforms to listen to this episode, please like and subscribe so that we can reach more people. All right. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.